Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. That can be found on page 15 in your pew Bibles. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Join with me in prayer, please. Our Father, we think of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Let him who has ears hear. And we are asking you, Father, that you give every one of us, whether we want them or not, whether we come expectant or not, whether we come in faith or not, give us ears to hear the voice of Christ from the the Word of Christ, the Scriptures today. Please attend the preaching of the Word by your Holy Spirit and power. I plead in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you're aware that it's a presidential election year. Had you noticed? We're bombarded with commercials on television and radio and on yard signs and in your news feeds. And a hallmark of these campaign ads is the campaign promise. The title for my sermon comes from not one, but two and maybe more presidential administrations. Promises made, promises kept. And where campaign promises are concerned, we've had some real doozies over the years, haven't we? We're going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. That's one that comes to mind. With my health plan, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Another one that comes to mind. Maybe the most famous campaign promise that fell short from relatively recent political history. I bet you can even help me finish this phrase. The broken campaign promise that cost a candidate an election. Read my lips. No new taxes. It's gotten to the place where we're no longer wondering whether a candidate will break his or her promises. Rather, we're wondering how many of their promises will they actually keep. And what we're longing for is somebody who's going to tell us the truth. We're longing for someone who will keep the promises that he makes to us. Well, in our text today, Genesis 21, we're going to begin to see the promises God made to Abraham and his wife Sarah begin to be fulfilled. But I want you to listen as we go along to how these promises apply to every one of you. God has made promises to you. And you need to see from the text whether he can be trusted to keep the promises that he's made to you. Do you know 
What are the promises that God has made to you? Do you know whether God can be trusted to keep those promises? Do you know what your life looks like if you are fully trusting in Him to keep those promises? Well, we're going to see those things in our text today. And as chapter 21 of the book of Genesis opens, Moses wants us to be absolutely certain that what is taking place here with the birth of a son from the union of Abraham and Sarah, this is the Lord's doing in accordance with His Word. Look at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And all this took place, as the end of verse 2 says, at the time of which God had spoken to him. These things are happening as God said, as He promised at the time that He had spoken to Abraham about it. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 13 and 15 and 17 and 18, the Lord has promised and has reiterated His promise to Abraham that He's going to be the father of a great multitude. A multitude like the stars in the sky, God told him. Like the dust that covers the earth. And as that promise was unpacked, the Lord told Abraham that the one by whom he would be the father of the great multitude was his wife, Sarah. But remember that by the time Genesis 21 opens, that promise was first made to them 25 years ago when, I think, Abraham and Sarah would still have been the oldest parents on the block. But now a quarter century's worth of winters and summers and falls and springs have passed, and still no child, much less a multitude. Sarah has already said the way of women has ceased to be with her, and she's married to a guy who's pushing triple digits in age. But then... But then the promised seed arrives. Finally, the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. The first promised star in the sky, the first promised speck of dust to cover the earth had finally come in the person of Abraham and Sarah's baby boy, Isaac. Just as the Lord had promised, He's here. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, he is finally here. And his name is Isaac. Just like the Lord said to Abraham back in chapter 17. Remember, Abraham fell on his face and laughed in response to the Lord's word that a hundred-year-old man and a ninety-year-old woman would conceive and have a son. Abraham laughed at the Lord's promise, then Sarah later laughed. And so the Lord said, well, then your boy's going to be named Isaac. That means he laughs in Hebrew. It occurs to me, that's kind of a rough go for Isaac. He didn't have anything to do with this, but because his parents laughed, now he's got to go around, hi, I'm Mr. Laughter. But Isaac was given the sign of those who were partakers of God's covenant with Abraham. He was circumcised when he was eight days old, just as God commanded back in Genesis 17. And so in verses 1 to 4 of Genesis 21, we have it hammered home to us that Isaac's birth is in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and Sarah. And then in verses 5 through 7, we're reminded that this is a supernatural birth. 
This is a miraculous intervention by the Lord God Almighty in keeping with his word. Moses tells us as he writes that Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. Even if his wife Sarah was still in the normal childbearing years, it'd be miracle enough that a hundred-year-old man could father a child. But coupled with that, the fact that Sarah was 90, even in a span when people lived longer than they tend to live today, this is well, well past fertility. And so we must conclude that this baby boy Isaac has come for one reason. It's because God has miraculously brought about his conception and his birth in accordance with the word of promise that he spoke to Abraham and Sarah. And it's this miraculous birth that transformed Sarah's formerly skeptical laughter now into a laughter of joy. Sarah, who once laughed at the promise of a son, now laughs with joy as she holds that promise in her arms. And there are some translation and interpretive questions about how the rest of verse 6 goes, but I I think that Sarah knows that others are going to laugh with her. The way in Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her, Luke says, at the miraculous opening of Elizabeth's barren womb when she had her son John in Luke 1. So Sarah's now laughing with joy, and others are rejoicing with her with that same laughter. She's astounded at this miracle, isn't she? Look at verse 7. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Who'd have thunk it? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. And with last Sunday's text in mind, when the promise was at risk as Sarah was in Abimelech's harem, Moses is leaving no room for doubt. This boy has come from the union of Abraham and Sarah. Did you notice how in the first four verses of this chapter alone, their names appear a total of 11 times? Moses wants you to know that Isaac is the son of Abraham and Sarah, just like the Lord promised. So we've seen how the long-awaited promised seed of Abraham finally arrived. And let's pick up the reading here at verse 8, as we'll see how the Lord confirms who the promised seed would and would not be. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to do, Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. 
And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So Moses fast-forwards the story for us in verse 8. Fast-forwards a couple of years after Isaac's birth when he's now weaned off his mother's milk, and there's a party that's celebrating Isaac's weaning. But Isaac's older half-brother, Ishmael, the child born in Genesis 16 from the union of Abraham and Sarah's female slave, Hagar, Ishmael's laughing at his little brother. A lot of laughing in this story so far, in the story of Mr. Laughter. But Ishmael's laughing isn't the laughter of sharing in Sarah's joy. In fact, the Apostle Paul regards this episode when he comments on it in Galatians 4 as Ishmael's persecution of Isaac. So we have the definitive divine interpretation of what Ishmael is up to here. And Sarah's not going to stand for it. She's already driven Hagar away once back in Genesis 16, but the angel of the Lord, you might remember, told Hagar to return to Abraham. And now Sarah is demanding Abraham, verse 10, to cast out this slave woman and her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And Abraham's grieved by Sarah's demand. Ishmael was his son after all, his first child. But the Lord comforts Abraham in verse 12 by affirming the status of Abraham and Sarah's boy, Isaac. The Lord tells Abraham, do what Sarah is saying for you to do. Cast out Hagar and Ishmael because, the Lord reminds Abraham, though it's not through Ishmael that your descendants are going to come, the great multitudes, the great nations that the Lord promised Abraham, the Lord's promises are going to come to pass through Isaac. Do you see what God says in verse 12? For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's an important phrase. We're going to come back to that. But as the narrative continues, the Lord also comforts Abraham, who has a soft spot, understandably, for this boy, by assuring him that the Lord is going to make of Ishmael a nation too. Why is he going to do that? Well, look at the end of verse 13. I'll make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring, Abraham. Remember, back in Genesis 12, the Lord promised Abraham that he'd be the father of a great multitude, that from him would come nations. And Ishmael descends from Abraham. So of Ishmael, the Lord is going to make a great nation in keeping with his promise to Abraham. So Abraham grants Sarah's demand. He sends Hagar and Ishmael away with some bread and water. They leave Abraham. They go into the wilderness. And that's an important detail as well. Tuck that away. And eventually the water Abraham sent them away with was gone. So Hagar puts Ishmael in the shade. And her expectation is that she's putting him in the shade until he dies. 
She walks a good ways away so that she doesn't have to watch her child die without food or water. And while she awaits Ishmael's death, she weeps. But the Lord hears both Ishmael and Hagar. Of course he heard them. That's how Ishmael got his name back in Genesis 16. Ishmael means God hears. And so God, having heard the boy and his mother, the angel of God here interacts with Hagar, reassuring her that God has heard the boy. He's going to make of him a great nation, just like the angel of the Lord first said to Hagar back in Genesis 16, verse 10. And then God directs her gaze to a well she hasn't previously seen. That's got to be a pleasing sight to somebody who's in the desert, in the wilderness, without water, who thinks her son's about to die of thirst. She sees a well. And then she goes and fills the skin that Abraham gave them with water, and she goes to Ishmael to give him a drink. And then we get a kind of epilogue from Moses, verses 20 and 21, as we leave Ishmael behind for almost entirely the rest of the book of Genesis. Moses says in those verses that God was with Ishmael as he grew up, as he dwelled in the wilderness, becoming skillful with the bow, and then having a wife for himself from his mother's native homeland, the land of Egypt. Now before we go on, I want to be sure you know what it is that God the Holy Spirit, who is inspiring Moses' writing of Genesis 21, is telling us with the story of Hagar and Ishmael. To get this story's fuller sense, keep a marker in Genesis 21 and go with me to Galatians 4. It's in the New Testament. If you're not very familiar with how the Bible is laid out and you need to use your table of contents, that is just fine. Get to the book of Galatians chapter 4. We're going to pick up the reading at verse 21. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21. The Apostle Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. Those are words we've seen already. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 
And there's a lot here, and I'm going to do my best to try and give to you what I think are the most relevant parts of Galatians 4 for where we are in Genesis 21 today. When Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, it was a predominantly Gentile church in the region of Galatia, and it had been infiltrated by those who came in teaching that if a person was going to be saved, he not only had to have faith in Jesus, he also had to strive to keep all the law of Moses. The salvation formula for these false teachers was gospel plus law equals salvation. And so to help the Galatians understand the eternally dangerous folly of that teaching, Paul reminded them of what we've been reading in Genesis. He addresses them, verse 21 of Galatians 4, as those who desire to be under the law. They are desiring to put themselves back under the law of Moses, again, in a wrong-headed way of thinking that if they strive to keep the law of Moses, that will merit them some saving favor toward God. And he reminds them what the law teaches, that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, one by a slave woman, that's Ishmael, one by a free woman, that's Isaac. The son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, Paul says here. What does that mean? Well, you remember back in Genesis 16 that Abraham and Sarah had faltering faith in God's promise to them. So Sarah gives her slave, Hagar, to Abraham to conceive a son with, to try to get this promise moving already. That son is called here the son of the slave, born according to the flesh, verse 23. But Isaac, in that same verse, is called the son of the free woman, born through promise. Paul's going to go on to tell the Galatians that Hagar corresponds to Mount Sinai where God gave Moses the law that these Galatians are being, uh, uh, are being tempted to keep for their salvation. So I want you to see that altogether Paul's putting slave woman and law keeping and flesh, he's putting all those categories together here. Slave woman, law keeping, flesh. But the free woman... Verse 26, Sarah, she corresponds to the Jerusalem above. She corresponds to where God dwells, to where those who are trusting in faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works of the law of Moses or apart from any good works to save them, the Jerusalem above where they'll live eternally. So on one side you have slave woman, law-keeping flesh, and on the other side you have gospel freedom, promise. Paul's putting all those categories together here in opposition to slave woman and law-keeping and flesh. And he says that to rely on works of the law for salvation is to be a spiritual descendant from Hagar. It's to be the children of the slave woman. But Paul is saying here that those who believe the gospel, those who are trusting in Christ alone to make them right with God. They're children of the free woman, Sarah. We descend from her because by faith we're in the one who ultimately descended from her, who ultimately was the seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ, who said in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, to be the son of Abraham. 
So I want you to have Galatians 4 in your mind as you read Genesis 21 so that you're not confused in the thinking that just because God heard Hagar's and Ishmael's cries, just because God spared Ishmael's life, just because God even made of Ishmael a great nation, that Ishmael is somehow a part of God's saving promises to Abraham. He isn't. Galatians 4 tells us that, and even Genesis 21 tells us that. Remember, He's not the son of the woman from whom the promised seed would come. He's the son of the slave woman. Where does he dwell? He dwells in the wilderness. Do you remember how Genesis began just 21 chapters ago? It begins in a beautiful garden paradise. That's where God dwells with men. So if that's the ideal dwelling place of God with man, to be in the wilderness, is to be, and we see this all throughout the Scriptures, to be in the wilderness is to be in a place of testing. It's to be in a place of judgment. The wilderness is a place not of blessing. Moses' audience knew that very well. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their unbelief in God's power to cause them to conquer Canaan. And if that weren't enough, who does Ishmael marry? He marries an Egyptian. He marries one from the nation that's going to come to enslave and persecute the descendants of Abraham, the nation that Moses' audience knows very well only lets them leave their slavery after God crushes Egypt with ten plagues. And the nation that descends from Ishmael is going to come eventually to hate the Hebrews, the nation that descends from the promised seed, Isaac. Psalm 83 says that Ishmael's seed is going to eventually conspire to wipe out Israel, though they won't be successful. But there's yet additional light that the New Testament shines on our narrative in Genesis 21, and I want you to see it. So go from Galatians, left a little bit, past the Corinthian letters, to the book of Romans, and go to chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I just want you to see the New Testament gives us all kind of help to interpret Genesis 21. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to start the reading at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, does this verse sound familiar from Genesis 21? But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Don't be confused, as many Jews in Paul's day were, that the people who were the recipients of God's saving promises to Abraham and his seed were those who physically descended from Abraham. We already know that's not the case because Ishmael physically descended from Abraham and he was outside God's saving purposes. But as it turns out, 
not even all those who descend from the promised son Isaac are the true spiritual children of Abraham. That's what Paul means when he says here in verse 7, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What makes a person a true child of Abraham, a true partaker in God's saving promises to Abraham and his seed? Well, it's not physically descending from Abraham. Rather, it's being one of the children of the promise who were counted as Abraham's offspring or seed. It's having faith in the one who, as Paul would say in Galatians 3, is the true seed of Abraham, the one to whom God's saving promises ultimately were made, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's Paul telling us when he calls to mind Genesis 21 here in Romans 9? Why was Ishmael rejected and Isaac confirmed as the child of promise? To back it up, why, among all the idolaters in Ur of the Chaldeans, was Terah's son Abram called by God back in Genesis 12 to be the spiritual father of all who would have faith in Abraham's son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Paul answers that question for us here in Romans 9.15, doesn't he? Look with me. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's why Abram and not another. That's why Isaac and not Ishmael. Because it depends on God who has mercy on whom he has mercy. And who has compassion on whom he has compassion. You don't know how I wrestled with cutting this whole thing out of my sermon. Because I know that doesn't sit right with some of you. Because it violates your own self-created sense of fairness and justice. And I want to say to you, I hope you'll receive this in the humble, kind way I mean to deliver it. What you think is fair or just is irrelevant. And frankly, it's haughty. Because what happens is you read in the Scriptures what God has done, and some of you say, that's not right. God shouldn't do it that way. That's not how I would have done it. And to you, Paul says in verse 19 of this same chapter, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Listen, the world wants to tell you, God is okay with your anger toward him. God is okay with your doubt. God's okay with your questioning his way of doing things. He's a big boy. He can take it. Of course he can take it. He's not troubled by you or me. It's not about whether he can take it. It's about whether you ought to be giving it. And you shouldn't. And if you're troubled by how the Scriptures say God has gone about His saving purposes, then you need to repent of the sin of calling God into your courtroom and thinking that you're fit to deliver a verdict against the holy, holy, 
holy Lord God Almighty. No, when you read the Scriptures and you see what God has done, what needs to be on your lips is what was on the lips of those who saw Jesus minister in Mark's Gospel. He has done all things well. There's more of Genesis 21 that we need to get to, but I don't want to move too quickly here. Some of you who are unbelieving, if you've been listening to what Paul is saying here in Romans 9, might be thinking, well, the game's rigged. If I'm elect, he'll save me. I can't do anything to stop it. If I'm not elect, what's the use of even trying to come to Christ? That's a foolish way of thinking. I think about what Charles Spurgeon said in one of his sermons. Quote, I hear one say, suppose I am not one of God's elect. To him I answer, suppose you are. Better still, suppose that you leave off supposing altogether and just go to Jesus Christ and see. To go to him is your wisdom, your immediate business as laid down in his word. Therefore, delay not, end quote. Unbeliever, Jesus says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so my unbelieving friend, I'm asking, what is keeping you from saying, then Father, I want to be among those who come to Jesus. And so I'm coming. You say that everyone who comes to Jesus will never be cast out. So I'm coming. I'm coming to Him today. I'm forsaking my sin. And I'm believing on Christ today. There are only two kinds of people. And everyone in this room and everyone in history falls into one or the other of the categories. You're either a child of the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, typified in our text by Isaac, or you're a child of the flesh, a child of the slave woman, because you will not turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And that's typified by Ishmael in our text. And like Ishmael, if you die, my unbelieving friend, without faith in Christ, you'll be consigned to the eternal wilderness that is the lake of fire. The Bible begins in a garden where God dwells with His people, and it ends in one in Revelation 22, God in Christ dwelling face to face with His people in a paradise, free from sin, free from the curse. But if you die without Christ, you will have been cast out from the presence of God and His people, just like Ishmael was cast out from Abraham. You will dwell, listen to me, unbeliever, you will dwell in restlessness and agony as the fiery, hot wrath of God's judgment against your sin is poured out on you forever. But I want to tell you why any of you who are outside of Christ don't have to die in your sin. I want to tell you why you don't have to dwell eternally away from God. It's because the ultimate son of promise the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate promised seed, the ultimate miraculously born, born of a virgin, the ultimate miraculously born son of Abraham. It wasn't Isaac. 
It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the sake of sinners just like you, he was willingly cast out from God's presence. On the cross in his humanity, the true son of promise was willingly treated as though he were the son of the slave woman. Do you see what happened at the cross? Jesus willingly was cast out of God's presence. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one to whom Isaac points was willing to be treated like Ishmael. He was willing to be cast out. He was willing to be cut off. He was willing to be forsaken, sin-stained, all so that the sins of all of his people would be forgiven. Also that God's just and righteous wrath toward his people, toward sinners like you, unbeliever, would be completely satisfied. And you could go from being God's enemy to being, it's unthinkable, to being his friend. And so having died in the place of sinners on the cross, God raised his son on the third day, resurrecting him to be the firstborn among many brothers, exalting him, enthroning him as king of kings and lord of lords at the Father's right hand. And so I'm calling right now, right now, don't delay. You who are outside of Christ, I'm calling you to forsake your sin and to have faith in the one who was willing to be cast out on the cross so that you could come in, so that you could be saved forever. Well, as I said, there's yet more to Genesis 21, yet more of seeing God keep the promises he made to Abraham. So let's go back to Genesis 21 and pick it up at verse 22. Genesis 21, 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So with these verses, the unit that began back in chapter 20 with Abraham and Sarah and Abimelech comes full circle. Abraham has continued sojourning in Philistine territory. It's ruled by Abimelech. But after the events that we saw last week in chapter 20, Abimelech knows he wants to be on Abraham's good side. 
Really, he wants to be on the good side of the God who Abraham serves. And so Abimelech and Phicol, his army commander, come to Abraham with what amounts to a a sort of non-aggression treaty. And because Abimelech knows that God is with Abraham in whatever he does, he wants Abraham to agree not to deal falsely with him, not to deal falsely with those who come after Abimelech. And Abraham does. He agrees to deal kindly with Abimelech and with those who come after him in this land. Following this, beginning in verse 25, this new treaty is tested when Abraham charges that Abimelech's servants have seized a well that Abraham had dug. And in this region, as we've already seen, sources of water were very valuable. So this isn't a small disagreement. But the two of them craft a formal agreement. Indeed, they craft a covenant with each other that would recognize this well as Abraham's and would establish peace between Abraham and Abimelech. And to confirm it, Abraham gives to Abimelech sheep and oxen and seven females, seven ewe lambs. And the number of these ewe lambs, seven, gives a well its name, Beersheba. It can either mean well of seven or well of the oath, and according to the story, either would be a relevant name. Then in verses 33 and 34, Abraham worshipfully responds to the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord. You see in your Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. Abraham's calling on the covenant name of the Lord in worship. Worships him as the everlasting God. We're going to see next week the degree to which Abraham worships the Lord. And then Moses ends this unit by telling us that Abraham who, as we've seen, is accustomed to a more nomadic existence, sojourned many days. Do you see that in verse 34? In the land of the Philistines. Now, this isn't just a throwaway line. Moses is like, i got to end this story somehow or another. (laughs) He tells us this because the land of the Philistines is a part of Canaan. It's the land Moses' audience is on the way to as the promised land. Canaan is the first fulfillment of the promise that the Lord made to Abraham back in chapter 12 of land. He said to Moses, and, or rather to Abraham in Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring I will give this land. What land? Canaan. And so as we see Father Abraham owning a well and planting and sojourning for many days in Canaan, we see that the promise pertaining to land is happening. It's begun to be fulfilled, even as the promise pertaining to offspring has also begun. So, brothers and sisters, how do we make use of this text? Well, first, I want you not to grow weary of the fact that we keep saying to you over and over and over that God keeps His saving promises. By my count, today is the 17th sermon in the Genesis series so far, and six of those 17 sermons have had titles that either talk about promises or faithfulness or certainty. So we've been on this theme a lot here, and I'm wondering, are you starting to yawn a little bit when we tell you that your God is a God who has made magnificent saving promises to His people and will keep those promises? If you're honest, is there a part of you that's a little bit, yeah, yeah, I think I got that now. Tell me something new. 
Well, let me tell you why I think that the truth that your God, Christian, is a God who makes and keeps all His saving promises is a truth you shouldn't be able to get enough of. Let me tell you why. It's because you're getting lied to in practically every other venue all the time. Somebody showed me this week how you can take Craig's and my voice from the From Dan to Beersheba podcast and have artificial intelligence create a podcast episode with our voices that consists entirely of things that sound like us talking, but it's things we didn't say. It sounds exactly like us. Indeed, it is our voices, but it's not us. Our world has gotten so that you can't trust what you read or even what you hear, even when it has your pastor's name on it, even when it's being said to you in your pastor's voice. Maybe some of you have begun to read about deep fake videos, as they're called, that are getting more and more sophisticated all the time so that in short order, you're going to be able to Look at a video of someone you know saying something to you in a voice you recognize, using uh, phrases that that person uses, and you're going to have to actually wonder whether that is a message from that person to me or not. How about scammers? They're everywhere. Lots of you have gotten emails purporting to be from me asking you to buy gift cards for staff that I'm too busy to buy because I'm currently in a prayer meeting. (laughs) Never mind why I'm emailing you about gift cards during a prayer meeting. (laughs) This past week alone, I've gotten four or five emails from Facebook, which I hardly ever even use, giving me a password recovery code. I didn't try to change my password. Those emails came because somebody somewhere was trying to hack into my account and pretend to be me. Maybe you know that entire websites are now dedicated to fact-checking politicians' speeches and news organizations' social media posts and telling you how much of what they just said is a lie. And then you have to question whether the fact-checkers are telling you the truth. You have to question absolutely Everything. It's exhausting if you think about it. How much we have to be on guard against being lied to all the time. But then you consider, I don't have to question this God. I don't have to be on guard against what He says. I can believe His every promise to me. Isn't that refreshing, brother and sister? That in a world where you have to question everything, in a world where you have to filter everything, you can open this book and you can hear it preached and you can know you're hearing from the faithful and true, the promise-keeping Lord God Almighty. I want you to receive that as an oasis in a desert of lies. So don't grow weary that in a world where you're being lied to all the time, there is an entirely trustworthy repository of truth written by the God who says, my word is truth, coming from the God who is the way, the truth, and the life, 
Rejoice, brother and sister, that God has made saving promises to you. And every time you're reminded of that, say, yes, amen, hallelujah. Tell me again that God has made saving promises to me and I can believe them because he's going to keep them. Second, because he keeps his promises, go all in with this God. What I mean is consider how confident you are in God's faithfulness to his promises. Consider how confident you are in God's faithfulness to his promises. Can I give you a few diagnostics? This isn't an exhaustive list that will help you measure whether trusting in God's promises for his people from the scriptures is a growth area for you. How about in the area of finances? This comes first on my list because this is where I'm dealing with in my own heart. If you're fully trusting in his saving promises to provide for you eternal life, and to provide for you to dwell forever with him in a place where you'll never lack anything, then you're going to live with your financial resources in an open-handed, generous, sacrificial way. But if you live like you have to hedge your bets, let's see how things look at the end of the month. Let's see how they look at the end of the quarter. Let's see how they look at the end of the year. If you feel like you've got to hedge your bets on going all in with God's kingdom purposes, that could reveal that you've got room to grow and fully trusting in the Lord's saving promises to you. If you fear that going all in giving-wise could leave you high and dry, could leave you holding the bag somehow, that reveals something of how you think God deals with his people, doesn't it? For others of you, there are sins that you're not ready to crucify. Sins you're not ready to put off, you're not ready to kill, because you're thinking that if you do that, you're going to be left joyless. If I give up this habit, if I give up this hobby, if I resolve to stop watching or listening to that kind of thing that I don't watch or listen to without a twinge in my conscience, if I stop dating him or her or doing that thing with him or her, if I have to work to have more fellowship with believers and less of the circle of friends I'm with now that's not helpful for my soul, I know that I'm going to be giving up joy and contentment. If that's you and you profess Christ, that kind of thinking reveals that you're fearful that God's going to consign you to a joyless existence, that you're going to be left holding the bag if you go all in on living like you believe in God's saving purposes for you, which include joy both now and in the full eternally. It reveals you're not trusting him as much as you ought to be. Some of you need to grow in trusting that God's going to give you friends and family if going all in on his saving promises cost you friends and family. For some of you, your nuclear family is the sun around which your world orbits, and you're fearful that if you make God's people, the church, the priority that they are to God, you're going to lose your kids or you're going to lose your spouse 
Some of you fear that making decisions for the Lord might cost you your friends or your co-workers approval. And I'm saying that all reveals that you're not trusting in the Lord's promises. You're not trusting in this promise-making, promise-keeping God, and you're fearful you're going to be left holding the bag in the realm of relationships and community if you go all in with Him. Others of you really like big margins of time and energy. You convince yourself, I've got to look out for number one. I've got to hold back from serving or participating because if I go all in and I really live like I believe the Lord's saving promises of providing for me now and eternally, if I start laboring now for the sake of eternal souls, I'm going to lose my buffers. I'm going to lose my margin. God's going to leave me holding the bag time and energy-wise. What am I saying with all this? I'm simply saying that when you're fully trusting in the Lord who has made saving promises to His people, and you live like you believe that God makes and keeps His promises, then you're not going to be engaging a hold-back gear when you think about serving the Lord and His people. You're not going to be making decisions based on a fear of what it's going to cost me financially or relationally or otherwise. You're not fearful that God's going to fail you and leave you high and dry. Instead, when you're living like you believe fully in these saving promises, then you'll happily live sacrificially for the gospel. You'll happily live sacrificially for the gospel's advance, knowing that if you belong to God, you will never lack anything you need. In fact, you'll live like you believe that whatever you give up for Christ is going to be returned to you 10,000-fold in the age to come. My dear brothers and sisters, Genesis 21 heralds to us that the long-awaited promised son of Abraham, his son Isaac, was promised and then he arrived. The land promised to Abraham, Canaan, Abraham came to dwell in. God keeps His promises to His people. And the long-awaited greater Son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come once, and He will come again. He'll keep His promise to come again to raise us from the dead. God's going to keep His promises to give His people, Abraham's spiritual children by faith. He's going to give us not only the promised seed, we're going to dwell with that promised seed in the promised land, and not just Canaan but the restored new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness, where God and man once again dwell face to face in perfect fellowship. God has made marvelous promises, believer, and you can go all in and trusting in the God who's made them. He'll keep them. Not one will fail. Let's pray. Thank you, O oh God, for the surety we can have in the promises that you've made as we see that you kept your promise to bring a son from Abraham and Sarah. You kept your promise to cause Abraham's seed to occupy the land. And you have kept the greater saving promise to bring from a virgin's womb the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will keep the promise to bring him again. You've begun to make of your Son a multitude of nations, those from every tribe and language and people and tongue. 
We praise you for that. Give us faith to believe in your promises now and always and to live like we believe them. We pray in Jesus' name.